Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hi, you two. It's been a minute here. Yo. I'm so happy to, to see your smiling faces on the little computer screen. What is new? We haven't really done it. Didn't do really much of a check-in last time. Any any uh, updates from uh, from Condon Land or Heyman World? Mm. What do you have to say? Well, I just got back from a college retreat this weekend, so I'm exhausted, <laughs> but... Really eager to paint my entire house now because after I climbed up on what was a 12 to 15 foot ladder to paint 20 foot ceilings, I kind of feel like I could go into this professionally. So one of my students was like, are you scared to be up there? And I was like, drunk people do this all the time. Like, I can do it. Sarah sent us a picture of herself on a ladder that was like twice as tall as what you thought it was going to be. It's 20 foot ceilings. That makes sense. And you guys did not pick a neutral tone from what I could tell. The church okay. didn't. No, we were Chartreuse? painting it. Chartreuse? No, no, no. It was yellow oh, and we're yellow. painting over the yellow. Oh, okay. To clarify, yes. Because it was just like very jarring when you walked in. Apparently so. studies have been done that you think yellow is like a cheery color, but it actually just makes people angry. <laughs> and it's the children's ministry room. But everyone yeah. survived one piece, Sarah? Everyone, oh my gosh, they had so much fun. It was a blast. It really was. And nothing will make you realize more that you're like almost 40 than like going to the beach with young people because they just like put on their swimsuits and run out there and you're just like, hi, I need a giant hat, a t-shirt, like comfortable shorts, you know, like anyway, it was, it was really fun. RJ, I sent you guys a picture and RJ was like, it took me a minute to figure out that you weren't uh, like a college boy, like in the photo. And I said that to my husband and he goes, actually, yeah, me too. Okay, good. I felt a little bad sending that, but I'm glad no, Josh, Josh was like, yeah, I couldn't up. find you in the picture either. Then I saw like, you know, basically a college boy with a t-shirt on that said church lady. And I was like, oh, there's my wife. So. <laughs> I uh, I could see where RJ was coming from because it looked it all blended together right, from right, afar. Right. Look, I'm not there to be glamorous, okay? Uh, well, Rutger, what do you have to say? Uh, we just had spring break. My wife took my middle son on a week long tour of basically every single college and university in the state of Texas because mm-hmm. uh, he's he's dying to get back to Texas, having spent his youth there. And they had a great time. Yeah. I was home uh, taking care of my five year old. And then Jonathan Adams and his family came in to visit, which was great, except I ended up staying up uh way too late and then getting and my son got me up too early so i promptly got sick this mm. week uh oh, so i've been no. battling battling a cold but i think after like gosh like four or five days i'm finally uh on the mend but generally things are greater weather is beautiful and uh Correct. family is pretty happy and church is good and, just another week uh slumming know, it in palm beach just slumming it right, in palm baby. beach is what i do doing uh, uh, right. now I'll just say for for we're doing well here in Charlottesville. Thank you guys, oh, as sorry, always. Dave. How are you? Did I ask? I'm not sure I asked. But. Virginia is, is holding strong. 
um we're yeah uh it's it's nice to see honestly it's nice seeing people come back to church i uh it's it's you know you can never tell when the switch flips but it is switched here um and i don't know i'm sure all the lessons and we'll still be untangling this for years to come but it you know um yeah, just locally, something happened where people are kind of living their lives again, which is kind of, which is nice, which took, a, when I tell people that we were still doing certain precautions, like in other parts of the country, they're like, what? You know, that's, it's been like mm-hmm. years since we've been doing that. And I think, well, you know, this is so locally specific in lots of different ways. Uh, and, and lots of the pressures people feel certainly, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, doing doing well here. Uh, I just I woke up to news that uh, Will Smith had 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 struck wow. Chris Rock at the Oscars. I was in I bed. did not watch the Oscars. Wow. I sort of yeah. abandoned the Oscars. Uh, um, but I did see the movie that Will Smith was in. You know that that where he's amazing as Richard Williams, King Richard. He was King Richard. Good. I thought he was he incredible. Was but I also know that he yeah. <laughs> really that was not did not look like it was staged. It looked like he really. Well, yeah, I, was legit. I mean, it is someone who's dealt with that because that's part. He made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's hair loss. And it's like it's such she has alopecia, as alopecia, like, right? Yeah, yeah. And a husband like watching a wife go through that is such it's really hard. I mean, women who struggle with that are like we're on higher uh like higher prescriptions for antidepressants, like across the board. Like mm. it's crazy how much it impacts just your sense of self. And to watch his wife go through that and to see someone on television make fun of her like i was like yeah that's yeah. fair anyway that's happened and we had to explain that to my son this morning but that was sort of exciting uh but i wanted to- i'm glad that coda won i gotta I haven't say seen coda and not i saw it it was good and like i actually for the first time in probably gosh five or ten years i actually saw every single best picture nominee oh my gosh rj and i was that's just so really cool. hoping personally that power of the dog or Nightmare Alley wasn't going to win because they were so deeply nihilistic. <laughs> I was like, can we just have Weren't a movie? Like, do, I watched both those movies. I'm so glad to hear you say yeah, that. I watched Power both those dog, movies. I and yeah. Like, oh. And I was like, well, that's three hours of my life I'm never getting back. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, beautifully acted, beautifully written, beautifully directed. Like, oh my gosh, I need a drink, know. you know? Like, I ugh. Know. I know. You know, yeah, whereas yeah, at least yeah. the other movies were a little, there were a little more redemption, praise God. Did you, okay, totally cut this. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I just have to say, one interesting thing I learned, because um, I listened to an interview of uh, the director of Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro, who's Thank amazing. Um, so the guy who originally wrote the book Nightmare Alley was married to C.S. Lewis's wife. What? And they were all friends. Whoa. And um, and they even even after she left her husband so they got divorced the guy who wrote nightmare alley i can't remember his name she marries c.s lewis and they still like he and c.s lewis still corresponded Hmm. wow isn't that fascinating anyway i was like what an interesting like a like a c.s lewis connection with nightmare alley so that's so interesting i really haven't seen i you know the 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 show i'm watching right now which i think is just brilliant is severance i don't know if you guys have been watching severance yeah rj sort of told me on to pull me onto it but like yeah the the the, talk about the moral quandaries and the the, it's it's i i can't watch it i think it's just too much for me right now josh is it might ultimately end up being extremely nihilistic but there's a there's lots of uh i think relevant questions in the age of technology and work-life balance and and just uh who am i um is a is a very interesting 
show. I commend it to people. I mean, maybe maybe the final episode will air and I'll say that was terrible. But um. well, the other thought I you know I always think it's interesting to look at the sort of movies for a given year and think about collectively the messages that there are, what they say about where our culture is right now. And I remember there was yeah. a piece I saw somewhere, it was entitled um, something like Hollywood is done with the nuclear family. But then I thought about this year's Best Picture nominees, and I actually thought, especially when it comes to father figures, there are some incredibly good father figures, like King Richard, Dune, mm had an amazing mm-hmm. father figure, and Coda, like all had amazing um, father figures and kind of amazing families, and I found that to be uh, a little bit hopeful as well. I, so my cut favorite, that out, No, my favorite movie that I saw this year was, was uh, Licorice Pizza. Uh, yeah, and amazing. Agreed. I thought there was a lot of redemption in that, and it's beautiful, um, but the, and just just love and adolescence, but and Philip Seymour Hoffman's son is just so great. I had no idea till my son told me <laughs> yesterday. It's Philip Seymour oh Hoffman's son. Talk about redemption. But I also, I also yeah. really, really loved Dune, and I'm told that Belfast yeah. is incredibly moving. Belfast oh, is I'm, really good, and another good father, see that, another sir. good father, yeah, yeah, another yeah. amazing yeah, yeah, family. Yeah. Well, I think you know, we're yearning for some that. good. That's like that's uh, Stephen Colbert's like all time. Like he, that's he, the one he every time, about. I feel like every time he talks, he talks about <laughs> Belfast. I'm like, I have to see it. This guy's like my spiritual guru. Let's talk about watching movies on the couch in goblin mode do you guys know what goblin <laughs> mode is i don't know no. what it is but i feel like i'm I was in gonna it say, right now exactly. with I was my like, over to our local goblin hair. expert uh uh sarah condon <laughs> what do you have to say wearing your wearing her hoodie i mean i just got the kids <laughs> off to school like you guys are an hour ahead of me i cannot help it that you're both like in real clothes why are so many people going goblin mode writes carrie paul in the guardian at some point in the stretch of days between the start of the pandemic's third year and the feared launch of World War III, a new phrase entered the zeitgeist, a mysterious harbinger of an age to come. People were going goblin mode. The term embraces the comforts of depravity. (laughs) Spending the day in bed watching 90 Day Fiance on mute while scrolling endlessly through social media, pouring pouring the end of a bag of chips in your mouth, downing Eggo toaster oven waffles with hot sauce over the sink because you can't be bothered to put them on a plate. Goblin mode is not a permanent identity, but a frame of mind. Goblin mode is kind of the opposite of trying to better yourself, says Juniper, who declined to share her last name. I think... Th- <laughs> oh, Juniper, God bless. <laughs> She's really going goblin mode. I think that's the kind of energy that we're giving going into 2022. Everyone's just kind of wild and insane right now. The trend represents a direct departure from the hyper-curated cottage core influence of early pandemic days, a standout trend of 2020 that included, comes up with that included pastel colors, bucolic scenery, and the showcasing of wholesome homemaking skills such as baking and embroidery. Cottage core thrived under the wistful ethos of making the best of what many people assumed would be only a few boring weeks at home in 2020. Call it a vibe shift or a logical progression into nihilism after years of pandemic-induced disappointment, but goblin mode may be here to stay. And why shouldn't it? Who are we trying to impress anyway? As one goblin mode audio says, if you can't handle me in goblin mode, you don't deserve me at my sleigh. (laughs) It is cool to be a goblin, one person says. Everyone is so perfect all the time online. It is good to get in touch with the strange little creature that lives inside you. (laughs) Is, is it? it? Yes. Is it? You know, 
I think goblin <laughs> mode seems to be linked to also being by yourself. Um, and how yeah. is it? Are you able to go goblin mode if you have little humans to you know take care of? I don't know, but I do know the allure. Or do you just embrace that life is goblin mode when you have little humans and you're like, I can't be bothered to clean the living room, you know? And we're just going to use paper plates and have uh, you know fried freezer food. Well, I, I I describe right? goblin mode as like the um, in if you guys to use a Seinfeld reference, it's sort of the embracing of sweatpants in all areas of one's life. Like, yes. to throw out any kind of pretense about aesthetic, uh, you know, um, refinement. Just like, I'm going to go the, the, the easiest possible route in every single area of my life for a little while to not uh, put forth any effort beyond mere survival. Um, I think it's a funny phrase. I think Goblin, it's, Goblin Mode is one of these sort of video game type words or uh, analogies where you sort of just took, I'm going to, I'm going to cut back all of the unnecessary, um, systems operating in my, uh, my person and, uh, ex expend no extra energy. But do you see this? Have you heard this word? What, what do you think about it? Sarah? I, oh gosh. I mean, for me, it just sounds like grief. So, mm. you know, I mean, sorry. It just sounds or, that's like, That's what I actually know. thought, Sarah, when I read it. I was like, it sounds like... Yeah. It sounds like grief. Like, fresh grief. Like, where you just can't do anything and you can't get off the couch and you can't... And you're, like, in the same, like, bathroom and nightgown for, like, days on end and, like, you're scrolling and it makes you feel worse and you can't get out of the cycle. And, like, this kind of sounds miserable to me. I mean, as someone who's, like really profoundly been in that mm -hmm. mode like i'm so grateful to be out of it and so you know and for a while i was like and i probably i'm sure i talked about it here i would be in this stage where it was like i'd kind of rise out of it and i'd be like maybe this is it and then i'd go back into mm -hmm. it you know and now i'm not now i don't wake up every day afraid i will slip there yeah. right like i'm i'm through enough grief at this point but um yeah, I just think everybody, I just think like anyone who is like not on an antidepressant or anxiety medication in this year of our Lord 2022, <laughs> like I just like don't know how you're that much of a superhero. Like I'm just like, that's amazing to me. It's just like, it's, it's, that's why that's, that's living on the edge. Like that's wild to me. You know what I mean? That you're, that you're doing that. So yeah. Or you like. Or you desperately need it, you know, <laughs> like it's just, uh, yeah, this is really bleak to me, to be honest with you. It's hard for me to find the humor mm. in it. I think, I don't know. RJ, make it funny. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, I kind of went goblin mode this weekend a little bit cause I was sick, you know, yeah. I hated it, yeah. but I was in bed and I did kind of, it was a beautiful, perfect day outside, like so oh. beautiful on Saturday. But I definitely like pulled the curtains and I wasn't feeling well. And I watched, yeah. gosh, I watched Nightmare Alley, which is blah. Uh, um, and, uh, but I, there was sort of nothing else to do, you know, because I just didn't feel good. And my wife was like, go to the room and don't come out. Don't infect us with your funk, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not kidding when I say that this feels a little bit like something written by people who don't have children, yeah. you know, um, and, and like there's something about when you have children, especially young children, where you start giving up on a whole lot of things that previously mattered to you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's not necessarily goblin mode. That's just kind of like reality mode or, or 
deciding which hill you're worth is worth dying mm. on mode or or something. I mean, the other thing which occurred to me, having just preached on the prodigal son yesterday, is prodigal son was living goblin mm. mode. Mm. You know, big big time, and I uh, love it. You know, and we had that uh, amazing Rembrandt painting, the Return of the Prodigal Son, on the cover of our bulletin, which hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, and uh, the son looks like a goblin uh, on his oh, knees. Wow. You know, uh, he, he's he, you know one of his shoes has no sole on it, and his, he has no hair on his head. You know, talk about Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, but mm. his father is loving and embracing him. Mm. And so that the thing that the interviewee said about if you can't love me, goblin mode. By the way, is that slay, S-L-A-Y yeah. or S-L-E-I-G-H? Okay, slay. It's not, a, I'm not Santa's oh, slay. No. RJ, I'm so old. I'm so, you're so straight. That was so, that was so chuggy. <laughs> I just did or something. I don't know what that was. But, it took uh, me a sec. You're right. Yeah, anyway. But I, I resonate with that, right? We do... Um, I often say to couples that I'm uh, counting for pre-marriage stuff, you know, the, the beauty and the horror of marriage is that it's sort of, it's what we want most and fear most, right? Mm-hmm. Being actually seen for who we actually are. And yet the miracle is that we, we're with this person who sees us um, at our best and our worst and still says, I yeah. choose you, I love you, I want you. Um, and that actually, uh, you know, vulnerability, that kind of vulnerability creates intimacy. Yeah. You know, we want to hide, and yet uh, when we can go goblin mode with each other and still love each other, um, it's a beautiful thing. I think thing. it could be a useful way of talking about this is me letting it all hang out, kind of like I, I don't yeah. have the wherewithal to um, project anything better right now. And yet at the same time, I mean, I think the the only thing, I, the thing I like about goblin mode is that it, it does deflate it a little bit in a sense of like, this is just a temporary thing. Uh, I'm kind of laughing because this is me at my absolute yeah. worst. Like it's not the be all end all. It is something that's just going right. to go through. Um, there's, there's also maybe something a little bit like Goblin mode to me, the only way it's differentiated from grief is that there's like a almost like a gleeful self indulgence that's not yeah. not like this is my only choice. Yes. This is just sort of like right. uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat as much Ben and Jerry's as I want, and that's just gonna be how it's gonna be. And there is sometimes some 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 re- limited relief to be found. Um, what Paul Walker was saying that. Uh, he would. He was preaching about the prodigal son this past weekend, and he was saying that like it, we all, even though most people who come to church tend to be more sort of quote unquote elder brother types, and acknowledging that we're all all of these people, he did say that like um, everyone sort of wants spring break sometimes, you know, and to cut loose. And for him, it's like to to listen to the doors sing, break on through to the other side, and just wanted to break on through the other side. And he said, of course, life life teaches you that there's actually not that much on the other side. <laughs> and no. uh, the goblin mode probably teaches you the same thing. Um, so I don't, I don't, I just, I thought it was a, an interesting, like new cultural word for talking about you at your unguarded self-indulgent worst, um, that we could talk about, you know, I did like that line about if you can't love me goblin mode, then you don't des- I, d- take that the word deserve. Well, then you sort of, I, you can't, lo- you don't actually love me. Um, right. and yet if you're with somebody, if you're married to someone who goes into goblin mode, uh, all the time, you know, that it's, you kind of suffer that someone's got to put, 
clothes on the kids. You know, it's not, uh, yeah. it, it, we can let ourselves off the hook for so long and then life catches up to you. Yeah. But well, yeah. it, sort of yeah. along those lines, because I don't know if Goblin Road is synonymous with rest. I really don't think it is. But Peter Severson uh, wrote something for our site, a wonderful thing called The Gift of Leisure uh, to a Hustling World. Now, this is a young man who's out in Denver and has just gone on a sabbatical. He He's not, he's not, a, oh, he's not clergy, hey. but he's, he works for a church-related organization. Uh, Lutheran one, I think, and he's gone on sabbatical. And he said, it's surprised. He hasn't stopped working. He says, it surprised people that I wasn't required to do anything in particular while I was away. In short, I didn't have to keep hustling during my time off. Instead, the church instructed me to lean completely, fully, marvelously into the possibility of rest and restoration, which sabbatical offered. In a way, stepping outside work for three months, long enough to truly radically disconnect was intended to remind me that I am a person apart from my job title or the work I do. It might be one of the most grace-filled gifts I've ever received. He goes on to say, Jesus invites all of us, especially those who are addicted to the flurry and worry, to find true rest in him. To be sure, even a sabbatical is a poor earthly substitute for this kind of rest, but it can reflect some dimensions of Christ's invitation. Amid our cultural worship of hustle, rest is a reminder that God has called us, claimed us, and received us beyond any self-justification which our job would claim to offer. Amid the cultural obsession with outcomes and achievements and repeated admonishments to, quote, do the work, Rest reminds us that Christ has done the work already, freed us by accomplishing the one thing that truly matters. And amid our cultural addiction to endless novelty, rest reminds us that God's boundless love flourishes in the deepening of our relationships with others, including those who are most familiar and beloved to us. I know one person on this podcast who is about to go on a sabbatical. What does, what does, what does she think? Um, you know, it's funny. All I can think about is, um, we visit, so I was at Trinity Galveston with my students this weekend, which is a fabulous church. Jimmy Abbott's the rector there. He's great. If you live in Galveston, it's a great church. Um, but they have this famous story of the founding rector. RJ, do you know the story? No. He'd been there 30 years. Okay. Super gifted person, obviously. He's in the pulpit preaching. And this is like, Oh, I want to say like the 1830s, maybe somewhere in there. Anyway, he's in the pulpit preaching and he holds out his hand and he says, uh, friends, I can feel the ho- the cold hand of death approaching. <laughs> and he dies in the pulpit. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. He dies in the pulpit. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I wonder if he got us about it. <laughs> he founds the church he like you know he gives his life to the church like obviously he's literally in a crypt like jimmy showed us like under the church like it's pretty wild and it's just him down there as it should be but anyway um yeah i mean i uh it's so gosh this will sound i don't know how this will sound but I was looking at some of the like plaques of, of other people who had served and like sort of like when they died versus like when they like probably retired. And, you know, I, I start to think like how much time did they have that their identity wasn't completely rooted in this Mm -hmm. job? I don't know. I, I, and I think that's a really, I know we have a lot more than just like clergy Mm -hmm. that listen, but I think that's such an easy, um, 
trap for us to fall into where our entire identity, um, you know, even within our family structure, but like our spiritual identity, our relationship with Jesus is somehow bound up right in the, um, in church growth or in, right. Or in like success in the church, which is like on some level, a thing of God and on some level, deeply worldly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think rest and I say this to my students all the time. I think rest is like a very rebellious mm-hmm. act now, right? I think rest and and real rest and real joy are incredibly rebellious. Remember the nap acts. ministry that we talked about? Yeah, and I don't think that's yeah, gob- yeah, yeah. I don't think that's totally. going goblin mode and f- r- collapsing no, into self indulgence. I, so I think it's all. more. I don't think. Yeah, I think it's actual like take like stepping away. Um, and I think that's so important. I wish everyone could get a sabbatical. I am like in any job. I'm really grateful clergy can because I, I think it's so important for us to pull back and be reminded of our rootedness in mm-hmm. Jesus. I think that makes us better clergy. I think that makes us better pastors or our people, but I certainly think it's healthier for us. So yeah, I'm super excited to have sabbatical and take some rest. There was um, another article this week. Carolyn Chen wrote, uh, she's a, I think a, uh, sociologists perhaps out in California. She wrote a book called Work, Pray, Code, talking about how work has become such a religion, you know, seculosity, uh, in, especially among people in tech startups. Everyone talking about it as their vocation and their calling. And um, and that, you know, they, there is no, you know, me apart from my job in, in that that, that more and more, in fact, what you're seeing in the world of seculosity or what she talks about is that more and more professions are consciously taking on a court of a clergy type view or theological view or the existentially, you know, um, grafted view of, of work in such an extent that I, I hope that actually sabbaticals are become common practice in a lot of other professions. And I think it's people always think it's such a privilege of a, you know, white collar job. And I think, well, most of the clergy I know don't certainly don't make much money. Like it's not a, I don't know if it's, necessarily impossible for other uh, type of industries to get along with this. But even if it isn't, it's still, it's still necessary for those who are interfacing with people nonstop. Yeah. Um, But well, it's kind of like the nap ministry. It's like, right. Like this idea that only privileged people should have this is like totally the wrong way to look at it. You know, are only privileged people like get this. It's like, no, everyone should actually have this. It isn't that privileged people shouldn't have it. It's everyone like should everyone have it. should exactly. have it. Right. RJ, like, what do you yeah. think? I think it's really hard for some people and without being too stereotypically sexist, usually men, um, to not find their self-worth in what they do. And, and that's just, yeah. that's, that's stating the obvious, but I just, I guess I want to have a no, little bit. No, but of, you should say it. I want to yeah. have some compassion on that. Yeah. Um, and probably that is, that's me wanting to have a little bit of compassion on myself as well. But I remember I've got a good friend who lives in Houston, um, and he's a really successful guy, very hardworking, um, and just talking with him about this. And he said, look, this is just, this is the way that some people are wired. Some guys are wired and he was wired that way. He's like, look, either I'm all in or I'm not 
Like mm-hmm. I can't work 70%. I can't work 80%. I'm either 100% or I'm not. And so he did have something of a sabbatical. He, he was coming out of one job and, you know, he, um, you know, had been successful enough that he had the resources to like sort of take a year off. But he also like mm-hmm. took his family to Africa for a couple months and he trained for an Ironman, <laughs> you know, and he oh rode his gosh. bike like 100 miles a day. And because that's just how he was wired, you know, he couldn't. Yeah. Um, he didn't know any other speed. Um, and at the same time, I do remember also there was a season in my ministry, maybe eight, nine years ago, where I remember in rapid succession, there were a number of older gentlemen who all, they kind of retired and they either like almost immediately had heart attacks or became alcoholics, you know, and, and, uh, they didn't know how to deal with that. And let's face it. That's also a thing like in music, right? I've heard, um, uh, what's the lead singer of Aerosmith's? Uh, Steven name? Tyler. I'm, I'm not an Aerosmith oh, fan. Oh, Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler. But he talked about how, um, you know, when you're used to having the high of being on stage in front of 50,000 people, you know, when your brain is wired to receive that type of thing, when you don't have it anymore, you've got to replace it in some other way. And usually it's substances or it's, yeah. it's, very, it's sort of self-destructive behavior. Or, um, or even uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, the last church I served, there was a large um, AA um, group that met on, I think it was Thursday mornings or I can't remember what day it was. But I remember the, the, the parking lot just being filled with all of these really high-end sports cars. Yeah. You know, all these recovering alcoholics who were incredibly successful because they just had there was something in them that needed to feed, you know, this, this, this need. And they were either going to fill it with alcohol or they were going to fill it with sort of workaholism and like, sorry. And, and working too much is probably a better option (laughs) than, you know, drinking Mm. yourself to death. So, so it's not healthy necessarily, but I also want to have some compassion on people who are just wired that way to work all the time and to find their identity. I I took a sabbatical a couple years ago and it, it was deeply disorienting for the first week or two. Yeah. And then, right. um, but then I loved yeah. it, you know, it was like, it was, yeah. I, my, yeah. my wife was like, I don't think you're capable of taking a sabbatical, all these like mythologies we have about ourselves. And like, there is a little yeah. bit of to like, when, when you say some guys are just wired this way, perhaps, you know, like that's also makes me sad when I hear that because that's, I hear something, I'm just a really stubborn person. You know, it's like, it's a, there is a sense yeah. in which like, I thought I was wired one way and I took, a, got to take a sabbatical and all of a sudden, yes, you fill your day up with stuff, but there are better ways to live than working 120, like, I mean, yeah. so I, don't, I guess I, I do want to um, yeah. convey, yes, the compassion to um, to people who have a really hard time resting. And I think there are different modes of rest. I think like things like exercise can be deeply restful. In fact, um, it yes. rest does not look the same for everyone. Um, but I also know that the, uh, equating one's output with one's vitality is a very dangerous thing. And I've watched actually, and not just, not just men, I've watched clergy who were sort of have the big job and then they, 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 they retire immediately. And that's really not great for them. And I've watched them sort of people take then like us, like a, like your, like our wonderful friend and board member, Jim Monroe sort of go from a big job to sort of being an assistant somewhere and, and sort of just not yes. slowing down, not stopping all at once, but sort of slowing down. And I think that's a really good thing to do. I guess. Yeah, I love that. You're like, actually, it's like slowing down your heart rate, right? Like you, you don't like, you really don't like run and then stop, yeah. right? That's not, you know, the thing I keep thinking about is uh, my mom's favorite photograph of my dad and she had it up in her office. 
Um, they were with their their dear friends uh, who they were on their way to see when they died, Rick and Randy. And um, uh, they, they it was these, you know, it's like my parents would get with Rick and Randy and it was like the one time they could slow down and really for that my dad could rest because my dad was, you know, a, a, he was a self-employed writer, oh. like, which like when you say that out loud, you're like, how did he support our family? <laughs> that he, that he that did. Hard, he had his own. Yeah, he worked nonstop. I mean, when I think about, so when I was in the house as we were packing things up, the thing that was the hardest for me to look at, I feel like this would be so painful for my dad to hear, but was in his office because I could see the computer screen and I could see his chair and I just expected to see the back of his head there because that's, you know, that's always where dad was. But anyway, there's this photograph of him and, you know, my dad didn't drink at all, child of an alcoholic, didn't even take communion wine, right? So there were no pictures of my dad, like, sitting at a table with a glass of wine, like, laughing. But he's laying down in the grass on a hill. And it's, you know, it's and he's, like, laughing. And he has, like, a Sprite in his hand. And it's, you know, my mom, I remember she showed the picture to me. Like, it was taken in the past 10 years. And she was just like, this is my favorite picture of your dad. I've never seen him looking so Mm. relaxed. Um, so I also think there's something to be said for like spouses, like being, I'm just gonna say there's something to be said for women being able to see their husbands, like mm-hmm. relax, you know, <laughs> like, cause they, cause no. we worry and like getting to see them, like actually, you know, like that's a, there's something really beautiful about, it. I think there's something that reminds us of our first years of marriage, right. When we're able to see each other without all of the burdens just for a moment yeah you know i like the what sorry it was fun continue uh, it was funny this weekend because like i said i was in uh bed most of the weekend and i sick goblin mode yeah at some point i apologized to jamie i was like jamie i'm so sorry that i've been so out of it and she's like oh yeah it's been a real struggle to stay at home and take it easy as opposed to like going on some adventure and try to find parking and deal with obnoxious people, <laughs> you know, because like my wife's idea of vacation is, is at this point, it hasn't always been this way, but this stage in her life is like, it doesn't matter where I am. I just want to be somewhere where I can like needlepoint and float in a pool and like mm-hmm. read a magazine. Whereas yeah. my idea of vacation, as you guys know, is Jumping like, I need cliff. to find, I got to go snorkeling. I got to jump off a cliff. I got to go find a waterfall, you know? And at some point you're like, RJ, I can't take <laughs> yeah. this anymore. You just, I, I yeah. need to just relax. You go do your fun thing. You know, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll connect back later. So I, Dave, for you to say that um, it doesn't, you know, just lying around, that's not necessarily synonymous yeah. with rest. Different people have different sure. visions of rest. Yeah. And I can rest, but I also need to have a little adventure. Yeah. I think adventure is restful for adventure me. Adventure is restful for so. you. You know, the, I, but I do like the acknowledgement of like, let's deal with who we actually are rather than who we should be. Um, and that replies yeah. to our relationship yes. with rest and work. I and I, but I, and I love the, mm-hmm. but I love the theology because, you know, the Peter ends it by saying like God's rest is given to anxious, hyperactive people just as much as those who can chill. You know, it's like, it's, it's not premised yeah. on our ability to rest best, you know? Um, but this is next from The New Yorker. The, uh, Becca Rothfield wrote an article called The Shaming Industrial Complex. And the tagline was, in the online area, shaming is a, nas- <laughs> the sh- shaming is a national pastime, <laughs> and yet shameless conduct persists. She profiles two books, actually, that have been written about shame and its role it plays, especially online. 
and how our relationship with shame has changed. But this is what she writes up. She says, shame canonically is the sinking sentiment that attends deviation from widely endorsed mores, whatever they happen to be. You can be sad or elated for any reason or for no reason, but shame requires a shared social context. The emotion in question arises not because you violated a standard that you set for yourself, but because you violated a standard that your milieu, perhaps policed by Twitter, imposes on you. One of the authors of the books uh, instructs us to begin acknowledging the cultural contingencies of our emotional outlook and to proceed by modifying our unruly inner lives, eliminating vengeful impulses and instilling a propensity for shame in the face of moral transgression. So this is one of the uh, authors basically thinks shame can be very good and redemptive as long as it's used to combat sort of bad social codes. Uh, but the Rothfeld writes, yet we may wonder how many people are capable of exercising so much control over their feelings. It is usually rash yeah. to conflate our espoused ideals with our actual practice. Seneca's vaunted stoicism didn't prevent him from bellyaching when he was exiled. Few will defend vindictiveness for its own sake but many of us will fall prey to it out of spite. The shame machine's mythologies can be difficult to resist, even for those who are well-positioned to know better. For all of uh, one of the writer's uh, rightful skepticism of the weight loss industry, she finds herself susceptible to its stratagems. She returns over and over to the indignities that she has weathered as a chronically overweight woman. Once shame inhabits you, especially from a young age, it's with you for the long haul, she writes. Yet it seems unlikely that shaming the shamers will yield anything approaching justice. Even when shame is employed in the service of virtuous norms, it's bound to spawn excessive cruelties when it is unleashed on a national or even a global scale. Interesting take here on the idea that uh, shame can be something wielded for good. Uh, and that the, the, yeah, and we hear this a lot. Those people should be ashamed of themselves. But oh what you, she writes about how you, shame Im, to to be to. <laughs> They're not okay. They're not ashamed. Have you well, no for it to be shame. used for it to be no used correctly, you have to inhabit the same ethical universe. Like so, if someone someone on the right will say that someone on the left needs to be ashamed of themselves, and someone on the left will say that someone on the right needs to be ashamed of themselves, both of them thinking. What they think is worth shame is completely different. So it's 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 uh, just talk, you know. It's uh, but I mean, just say what you mean and call people <laughs> idiots. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's so much easier and 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 probably like equally as effective. Relational you know? advice with Sarah Condon. <laughs> They're not gonna listen. Just to call you. them idiots. <laughs> care if you're ashamed of them just call them an idiot that's what you think so see how it goes workshop idiot so yeah i just i don't know i mean i just think shame never gets us anywhere i mean we've talked about this but there's a lot of like the shaming talk that's happening in some pulpits to try to get people back to church Hell, there was shaming talk before the pandemic about soccer practice on sunday mornings right like and it never works. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't work. I, 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 so I'm baffled when anyone says anything about shame other than like in a pastoral moment with someone, when they said, I feel deep shame yeah. about this. They've come to that right? on their own though. I mean, it's that, usually not a, and it actually yes, is a personal they've thing. They've come to yeah. that on their own. They've always come to that on their own. Yeah. I feel deep shame about this. 
And, you know, and I will say because and I love I do love this sort of take on like if you get this in childhood, you have it for life. Yes. And get some therapy, you mm. know, like you may feel shame about things from childhood you that are not your fault, mm. you know, and, and I would say even more than therapy dare to have a conversation with your parents about it as an adult mm. and say, Hey, this was really hard. I have this memory of this. I felt mm -hmm. deep shame. Walk me through what happened, you know? And maybe your parents will do what a lot of parents do, which is get really defensive. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they'll be the miracle that was Deborah Ferguson in my life and say, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I remember that. Yeah. We didn't handle that well, you know? Mm. So, you know, I just, I, I, I to just, act like I shame, shame will be, works. will be cured at this point by shaming the people who are the shame. Like, I don't think we, we acknowledge enough that the, all of the social media, uh, when they talk about the shaming industrial complex, they're talking about Silicon Valley and it, 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 uh, it profits yeah. off of shame. I mean, the whole model is it, the yeah. more clicks you can, you can, you can whip up a mob to shame someone who's, you know, Will Smith or Chris Rock or whomever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's going to get a lot of, uh, clicks and it's going to generate a lot more data for those companies that thrive on that stuff. And it's just the truth. That's how these things work. Yeah. And so there's an incentive that's built in that people don't even realize they're being algorithmically manipulated to to continue this behavior and yet i'm i come back to that colbert thing the other week it's like we must not settle for evil as our deliverance from evil it just doesn't work shame is not mm. the deliverance from shame like it's um and that's really yeah. hard to say because you want to just say oh it's just those twitter mobs of the 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 woke or the the reactionary right wing you know everyone it's their problem and it's the that shaming those is it, it, it didn't work with you and it's not going to work with them right i mean it's it's rj yeah. what do you think as someone who should be ashamed of himself <laughs> all the time sorry well check um i think everyone has to deal with their own stuff yeah you know i th i think about uh every time someone in the gospels someone tries to co-opt jesus into their own kind of shaming project, Jesus is like, uh-uh, what about you? What about, forget about them, mm -hmm, what about yeah. you? He always makes it personal. He's like, don't you worry about those other people over there. They have nothing. What about you? What about mm -hmm. me and you right now? Let's do this. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I like that. So yeah, I got my own. I got my own stuff to do. Well, deal with. one of the things that was really cool is this week, I, actually, Vox is doing a whole series on America's struggle with forgiveness, and there's some amazing stuff about forgiveness. But one of the one of the writers, Aja Romano, wrote an article kind of about this very thing. She says that everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven, which starts as kind of another yet another rumination on cancel culture. Uh, but then it kind of takes a turn. She says this. She writes, "Social media reward." pithy angry takes rather than nuanced balanced discussions and then boost those takes so they attract more angry non-nuanced takes it can feel good to be part of that collective anger especially when you feel righteous it's often extremely difficult to let that anger go to forgive adjust and move on most moral and spiritual authorities teach us that the cycle of repentance you know dealing with bad behavior usually involves grace grace 
the act of allowing people room to be human and make mistakes while still loving them and valuing them might be the holiest, most precious concept of all in this conversation about right and wrong, penance and reform. But it's the one that almost never gets discussed. These people at Vox are not listening to the mocking cast. Grace forces us, this is great, guys. Grace forces us to contend not only with other people's human frailty, but with our own. To remember how good it feels when someone out of the blue treats us with respect, empathy, and kindness in the middle of an angry conversation when we're, where we expect nothing but hostility. To be shown the kindness oh. of strangers when we expect cruelty, and then bestow that gift in turn, that's the remarkable quality of grace. It's not fighting shame with more so shame. Good. Grace, she's, she Miracle. basically is saying, is interrupts the, these cycles of uh, these spirals of shame and recrimination. Uh, I wasn't kind of expecting to see this in Vox. We, we don't need to go into that. What, what do you guys think about, uh, what do you think about Grace? What do I think about Grace? <laughs> it's everything. It's the whole uh, enchilada. Yeah, yeah. What else is there? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I keep, I'm thinking about this weekend when I was with my students, you know, the weird thing about, um, being a, a college, uh, minister is that like, you just say random things, right? Like you're just like, wow, this thought, you know, especially if you're me, I mean, that is kind of how I live my life. And then later people will repeat it back to you and you're like, oh, did I say that? I don't know. <laughs> I know what you're talking and, about. Yeah. Um, and one of my students was like, he said, you know, one thing you said that like has stayed with me for a long time and you said it early in your time here was that no one escapes secular hell. And that was from a piece that we talked about mm. on this podcast. And I guess I preached about it. And um, and I think that's just like, I, I mean, that's just grace, right? Is this idea that there's no, and I think that's why Vox is probably writing a series and like people are struggling with, with this stuff because that's actually what this is about, right? Is that we don't actually have, redemption or escape for people through a secular mm. lens um they just are there for forever and even if they do other things we're like oh they're doing this other thing but just like just remember <laughs> what they used to do yeah. you know we have fanny packs unlike <laughs> god and we keep the receipts and we just want everybody to know they did this now they're doing this good thing but like remember they did this mm. thing too right um because that's how we treat that's how ourselves, we treat ourselves right that's why god is so radical that's how we treat ourselves like everything we show up for every time we get praise every, we're like oh that's that's good but like if you really knew me or you knew this thing i did or whatever like i didn't do all the work you know kind of narrative within ourselves instead of just like instead of just mm. being loved, which is like very hard for us, right? Um, yeah. Well, we want something that works. We want something that's effective, right? And Capen yeah. is so good on this about how grace or what he calls kind of um, you know left-handed power, unconditional love. It doesn't. It it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not guaranteed to work, right? It it may soften the heart, as he says. It may soften the heart of the person that you are giving it to, but it also may just get your face bashed in, as it did for Jesus. <laughs> you know, it may get you killed. But he said the one thing it does uh, ensure is that you will never close the the interpersonal door from your end between you mm. and another person. You know, you will always keep the door open to that person, even if they're trying to, even if they shut it on their end, it's always open on your end. And he says that's what God does with us, right? That he, I love this line, with it, he, he wedges the dead body of Jesus in the door between himself and humanity, 
right? Oh and so, my and gosh. So like, he's like, on the, and, he's, and he says, there, just try to get me to take that back. You know, you oh. want to know, you want to know how committed I am to never closing that door. I'm going to put the dead body of my son as a doorstop. Goodness Sort gracious. of between, yeah. uh, between myself yeah. and you. Which is a really heavy thing RJ, to say. That's Kate. Do you guys not that's know that? I've never heard that before. No, my goodness. Really? That's like my fave. Oh my gosh. I love so it. So you got to put it in the show notes. That's so good. Um, but it reminds me that I thought the probably my favorite movie this year was um, I Like Drive My Car, not just because it mm. prominently featured a Saab 900 <laughs> Turbo SPG, which was incredible. Right, and I, I really, right. really want one now. Dear but Santa. It was, but it was all about it was all about shame. It was all about shame and about regret yeah. and about forgiveness and kind of about and kind of about grace, but in a in a really gentle and relational and beautiful way. You know, someone coming to terms with um, anyway mistakes that he had made and regrets he has and relationships that have been broken. And I haven't I haven't really heard good. of this movie actually. Anyway. That's I, I, awesome. What drive my oh, car? No, Japanese. Even I have heard I, about it. Yeah, no. Yeah, you got to watch it, Dave. Too busy it's watching really, really Severance good. over it's here. Th- it is three hours long, and you'll laugh because it starts. The movie starts. You're like, "Oh, this is a really slow pace," and you're watching it for about an hour, and then an hour in, the opening credits come, and you <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, that was just the oh prologue." Um, but it's really good and beautiful, wow. so cool. I commend it to you, especially for the sob. Which Dave you used to own a sob. You Something had a 9, 000, did always you broken, as they say. That's that's what. <laughs> Something always, always broken, but oh, so gosh. worth it. It's like a Something jet engine. Always um, yeah, born from jets. It. I have to say this, and I'm sure we said it eight times on this podcast, but it always makes me think of the line from Jacob Smith that he says about people in your church: "They can break up with you, but you can Can't never break. break up with them." That's right. That's mm-hmm. grace right there. So you cannot. That's the burden. That's the so burden we good. carry. Well, I want to talk about a different type of br- grace, a sort of almost like divine or, or like a, a very inconvenient and in fact, ugly type of grace that um, that we, some of us experienced. Uh, maybe grace is the wrong word, but Rene DiResta writing The Atlantic last week wrote that the UK crisis briefly put America's culture war in perspective. She writes, mm. on February 24th, the invasion began. On American social networks, where the culture war normally rages ceaselessly, the fights that tend to dominate online debates, such as the ones over COVID policies, school curriculums, and trans athletes, suddenly went quiet. This wasn't for lack of effort. Many hyper-partisan influencers tried to keep up their shtick, but the public's attention appeared to be turning elsewhere. Data from CrowdTangle, a tool that tracks users' engagement with Facebook content, suggested that... Crowd tangle. Sorry. <laughs> uh, suggested that many of the top posts among American users focused on the horrors and heroism of the conflict. Families splitting up, Ukrainians volunteering to defend their country, a young soldier sacrificing himself to blow up a bridge. Although an imperfect metric, a top 10 list derived from Crowd Tangle data, a ranking typically dominated by the most successful political rage content of the moment, suggested that at least for a couple days following the invasions, invasion, users were more engrossed in coverage of the breaking war. Those first few days after Russia's invasion revealed something important about the United States. Much of what looks like unbridgeable polarization online may be the product of boredom, distraction, and jadedness. When something real happens, people pay attention to that instead. Now, I know you, we hear this and you immediately say, well, what are you 
trivializing here in culture war concerns because those are sure important to me. And I don't, I just, I, what I, what I appreciated about it. And, um, there were a lot of jokes about how, you know, Vladimir Putin should be, you know, he, he solved the COVID crisis in one, in one day. Cause people are just <laughs> thinking about other things, but I found it to be a very hopeful thing. Um, that in the midst of something real, you know, atrocity and sadness and aggression and war, um, a lot of the a lot of the little you know skirmishes that people feel and the the deep you know uh, that occupies our online uh, you know attention we were distracted from them or we like attention did go to something a little bit more urgent i remember my uh, there's that soundbite that the least uh, racist group demographic uh, on the pl- on the planet are Trekkies because they think about the world in terms of aliens and earthlings <laughs> rather than in terms of black and white. And if there's other things going on there oh. too, but th- my sense is like the church, one of the reasons I think it's important we talk about death so much is that we properly trivialize some of the things that we think are so important. And we, we keep in mind the gravity of, our predicament, the gravity of mortality and the real things that could turn at any moment, the lack of control we have. Um, and I saw that, that the conflict did, did some of that work <laughs> to use the phrase from earlier, uh, for a few minutes. And I, and I saw people who don't have anything else in common, sort of find common cause and kind of compassion and, and entry point. And I, I guess that's a, um, that's a breaking in to our closed systems and our, our, our filter bubbles that sometimes it's, it's easy to look at a filter bubble and, and the degrees to which we're ensconced in these ideological enclaves and think nothing could break through. And that as much as people tried to say, tried to spin it, it, it did break through. Right. I mean, I, I think um, I didn't know we were capable of it still. I think that's the thought I had because you know, I mean, growing up with grandparents who went through World War II and people talked about, you know, it was like the rationing of things and the gathering up of like, you know, old metals to turn into weapons. And, you know, I mean, sort of the communal spirit, right? I mean, because the thing with the pandemic was like, I feel like we had that for like a second and then like it got super divided. And part of that was because we were all in our own homes, in our own heads with our mm-hmm. own screens, right? And so I just, I remember during sort of the height of, of pandemic stuff, and certainly there was so much division, it was like, oh, like, we're actually not capable of doing anything that my grandparents' generation did. And this has been, and I do, I want to clarify, I do not, not often, you will never hear me use the phrase, restored my faith in humanity. <laughs> And I do not often look at like the mass sort of movement of of my species and think like, hey, look at us. But I was like, oh, my God, we're still capable of like collective empathy. We're still capable of like um, of of concern of this of this <laughs> other group of people. Just give us someone um, else to be mad at. Just give us a common or, or enemy. a, d- a, a deeper mean, fear. You know, like fear of nuclear war <laughs> happens yeah. to be yes. stronger yeah. and more mobilizing yeah. than fear of a yeah. disease that you may get. You know, it's like. I mean, yeah. When when Jimmy Abbott showed us this um, 
I mean, really shaped like a body sort of place for this priest, this this founding rector of Trinity uh, Episcopal Galveston is, is is his body is. There are these plaques on the wall, and you get a plaque on the wall when you are a rector mm. and you die. So your ashes aren't there, but you get a plaque on the wall. And so Jimmy's like, there's a couple of rectors before Jimmy, and they don't have their plaques up yet. So he pointed at this empty space to my student, and he goes, this is where my plaque will go. And I said, Jimmy, tell me, when you have a really hard day, do you come down here That's- just to remind yourself <laughs> that, like... You've got a limited amount of time. And he's like, absolutely. You know, like, so I, I do think, right, the, that is the beauty of the church to me as well, Dave, is like, you know, the, the fact that this isn't the final word, the fact that, that I know that that beautiful photograph of my dad resting pales in comparison to the mm-hmm. rest that he has now. Right. I mean, I, I just I think there there is something, though, that was that about Ukraine that's been incredibly moving to me that everyone has been able to say, we are worried for these people. We see ourselves in these people. Yeah. How can we help? Yeah. I, I, you're echoing a lot of, I thought to myself, I, could this happen right now? Like, could, could we actually come together in this way? And, and by and large, right. at least for a little while, we, we did. And you, you guys yeah. kind of experienced that in Harvey, I think. Um, oh, when, absolutely. Yeah. Don't you think, RJ? Yeah. Not just not just Harvey. I thought first, you know, we moved into New York uh, the weekend after the towers fell, like the weekend after 9-11. Like, I know you've said this before, but that is so wild. It was wild. Um, and I remember thinking how New York seemed like the the night, like the friendliest place I had ever lived. And I still actually do think New York is a pretty friendly place, but there was also something about those weeks and months after 9-11, obviously, where the Mm -hmm. city really came together and people were interacting with each other and talking with each other and talking about real things and had a generosity of spirit Mm -hmm. that they uh, probably just didn't um, have before, you know? And Harvey was exactly the same way. Like the city had to come together and, and try to serve these just hundreds of thousands of people who'd been flooded out of their out of their homes. So, yeah, um, there's something about tragedy that uh, tends to bring people together. And you, you wish that it didn't take mm-hmm. something like that, but it seems to be the case. Yeah, It's like just the leaning into suffering to me that is like... I mean, thank God that like we haven't lost that ability <laughs> in the midst of all our like sort of violent, divisive tendencies. There was a bit of that here in Charlottesville after the riots in 2017. It it got, you know, because it was such a media event, it became, and people saw the discrepancy between how things were being covered versus what it was actually like, you know, right outside my window. Um, It was less short, it was more short-lived. But um, I wonder, I wonder we don't have like an enormous amount of, uh, uh, associations with the Ukraine in a way that, you know, frankly, I still do about Russia from Ivan Drago, you know, like from when you're a little kid and Russia was always the enemy. And it's, it's, I've, yep. it has been interesting watching people revert to these, um, remember stranger things like the third season, it's the Russians are coming to get us. And like, that was oh, my yeah. childhood in a lot of ways. And now yeah. it, people are sort of wrapping themselves in those same <laughs> prejudices, like, like an old, uh, well, but it, yeah, which I, 
I don't like to see that. I mean, I think, you know, because we for, we forget that there are people in Russia. Who, I mean, they're so they are equally as helpless in so many yeah. ways. And I mean, we have a, a family at the school and the mom is from Russia, but she's like so many people there. Uh, she's like first generation Russian. Like everyone's from the Ukraine and mm. she's got nephews who are fighting in the military. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. very real. Like this is happening like you know, like, I I don't know. And I think I haven't had that sense of, unfortunately, we are so disconnected as Americans from, you know, struggles, fights, wars we've had in the Middle East. Um, And this feels more right. It does. I mean, land war in Europe. That is the the key. I keep hearing that. Uh, (sighs) Let's, let's move on to something that kind of goes a little bit more global, which I was sort of, we, we don't usually go to this macro scale, but uh, David Clay wrote something for Mockingbird. I want to close with called God's hand in human history. He says uh, that the ever-present problem of evil makes it hard to speak concretely of a divine plan orchestrating human history, even if Christians have always agreed that such a plan exists. It's better to speak of the hiddenness of God and the unknowability of his ways, apart from special revelation in Jesus and scripture. Recently, however, even as the world convulses from a global pandemic and a major European war that could potentially turn nuclear, I've started to think that there could be such a thing as excessive theological modesty when it comes to discerning the guiding hand of God in history. Many of the most godly, mature, thoughtful believers in my life seem to have no problems doing so. The hand of God may be somewhat mysterious, but that's not the same as saying it's invisible. Moreover, careful reflection on the way history has unfolded gives us glimpses of God's providence, even as it leaves much of it bewildering and ambiguous. For instance... It is remarkable that humanity made it out of the 20th century alive once it had invented nuclear weapons. Observe the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, the 1967 solar flare that jammed American radar systems, a possibly drunk Richard Nixon ordering a nuclear bombardment of North Korea after the shootdown of an American spy plane, the Able Archer exercises in 1983 that sent Soviet leadership into a panic, and post-Cold War, the 1995 Norwegian scientific rocket mishap that literally had Boris Yeltsin and reaching for his nuclear briefcase. Given these things, we have to decide between one of two alternatives. One, humanity got really lucky, or two, we were spared. Other aspects of history call for a similarly meta-historical explanation. In her introduction to Christ the Lord out of Egypt, the novelist Anne Rice explained that she had started seriously contemplating the existence of God after studying the history of the Jewish people and considering their survival against all odds to the present day. Wow. He closes by saying, in general, it's the path of wisdom to avoid trying to fit this or that historical event into its precise slot in God's plan. Moreover, it's best to hold healthy suspicion towards theological interpretations of historical events that make us and our allies look like heroes and our cultural opponents look like villains. The danger of projecting our own desires and ambitions on God is very real. Even so, God governs in the affairs of men, as Benjamin Franklin once affirmed. To be sure... God does so in a very strange and hidden fashion, but occasionally we can truly see the outskirts of his ways in human history, and we should avail ourselves of these opportunities to find some comfort and give God the glory. Hmm. That's so good. I I thought it was... You're right. I think there's there... He cites the the Fermi uh, um, theory that says the best evidence that we haven't been contacted by aliens is that once people discover nuclear power, they civilizations tend to destroy themselves. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah. it, the countless post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic works of fiction that I enjoy consuming all basically point to something that hasn't actually happened. You know, um, it, it could happen. We're yeah. it's, it's right in the tip of our imagination all the time. But the fact that, uh, he also cites the fact that, you know, um, black Americans had were, you know, adopted the slaveholders' religion and not only adopted it, produced some of the greatest heroes of the faith and, and able to use the same Christianity sort of to survive and then to, th- to, to, to overcome uh, their, uh, their captors. So, I don't know. There's lots of. It, 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 I think it's good to have just a, a historic a perspective check on the reality of death. It can also be good to have a perspective check on the reality of life and how how uh, unlikely that is. And then, in fact, maybe God's hand is at work beyond just the hidden God, which I affirm. But you know what I mean—the excessively modest view. Yeah. Well, Arch. Dave, that reminds me of a couple of things. I think in one of your dad's books, he talks about how his doctoral supervisor, when he was in Germany, once accused him of being a sin pessimist rather than a grace <laughs> optimist. And your dad's uh, commentary is, that was a dark day over there. <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, But I think that's what this article is pointing us to, right? There's a temptation to become a sin pessimist, but he's asking, asking us to be a little bit more grace optimists, you know, and, and I like this perspective too, because I feel like so often what Christians do with history is they either try to justify Christians or they try to help God out or that, you know, we need to do these things. You know, the temple must be rebuilt in order for Jesus to come back. Um, or they um, try to figure out when the end times are coming, uh, which Jesus, of course, Jesus says about that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. And if Jesus doesn't know, we're probably not going to figure it out. But I like the way he's looking at history and saying, it was sort of eyes of faith, mm. right? And saying, yeah, maybe we got lucky, and maybe um, there's actually someone looking out for us, which is something that I think we do individually all the time. Right. As, as an individual, I always look back and I look back to my own life and especially times that were hard and when I didn't know what God was doing or what he was up to or where he was. And sometimes by the grace of God, you can look back and say, oh, OK, I sort of see a li- maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe he was with me. Maybe he mm. was carrying me. And this is doing the, that in a little more um, collective manner, which is also deeply biblical. Right? That when, in, in the Old Testament, right, when the, the Jews are remembering, they're not just remembering their own life, they're remembering the history of their people. And when they're praying, they're not just praying for themselves, but for their nation, right? And they're looking forward to a time, it might be generations in the future, when God will show up and deliver his people, even if he doesn't necessarily deliver them individually in the present. Um, so, yeah, that's, it feels kind of counterintuitive, but it also feels kind of right mm-hmm. and hopeful which I like. Yeah. I mean, I I think we uh, really lean, speaking of leaning into things, we really lean into like collective shoulds, especially in sort of mainline Protestant Christianity. Like we all should care about this cause as Christians and we all should do this thing as Christians. And I do think it's like a whole different, dare I say, more restful perspective to be like, God is actually Mm. taking care of us. Mm. Like God loves us very much. And that love uh, doesn't look 
the way that we think it should. Um, but we are not God, thank God. And so this is how it looks. This is how we are being taken care of. Yes. I mean, it's it's why I, I as much as I sort of loathe writing spiritual autobiographies in seminary, I kind of wish everyone had to do them. Um, because you do really see the hand of God in so many ways um, mm. in your life. You know, you see the things that God's preparing you for. And, you know, who knows what God is preparing us for collectively in these conversations we're having about nuclear war. Um, and who knows? Maybe we will be spared. Maybe we won't be. Um, but, I mean, I can tell you this, like in our household, because the kids will hear the news or whatever, and our daughter the other day was like, do you and she doesn't even know, of course, what like nuclear weapons are, but she's like, Do you think that Russia's gonna send a nuclear weapon to the United States? And we both said, No, <laughs> because and and like we both said it, and then later I was like, I mean, if they do, she won't know, we'll just all be dead. <laughs> That's and Josh right. was like, Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, Come here, honey, let's play a little game <laughs> while <laughs> we wait for the bombs to fall. Let's all be together, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's just like. I, yeah, praise God. We've been spared for this long and, and also praise God for, you know, for a community that even for, you know, 21 glorious seconds or whatever it was, we all cared about, um, a people outside of ourselves, mm. uh, in a hopeful yeah, I, I mean, way, I'm sitting right? here feeling gratitude in a way that is, I don't, again, yeah. you don't want it to come at the cost of these terrible things but it, in fact if if, if, if anything what P clay's david clay's piece is saying is that like it could come at a lot more of a cost you know it's um that's it, it drives me crazy though dave and and i know it's just gotten worse when people say like well, I wish we could do this without the suffering. Like, I wish we could have communal joy without the suffering. I wish we could, you know, and it's like, that's the only yeah, way no it other works, way. Yeah. period. That's literally the only way it works. It's not joy. Otherwise, it's it's not actual. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, what is yeah. the, uh, the, um, the Bob Dylan in Not Dark Yet, which I have a quote now that someone gave me that behind every beautiful thing, there's been some kind of pain. And I think that oh, that's... Totally. Every beautiful hymn you love has a story yeah. behind it. Oh my gosh, RJ. Yes. Well, uh, you too. It's been great to be with you. I, we, one thing we forgot to mention is that uh, the New York City Conference is a month away, or a little over a month away. Wow. Uh, Definitely, it's it's a great crowd shaping up here. Uh, but please do, if you're planning to come, uh, book your buy your tickets, your entry tickets soon, uh, because we're we're filling up, and we cannot wait to see you. Hope you can come. Um, but the two of you, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yep. Uh, you know, if the bombs don't fall. Um, <laughs> We won't know if they do. And if That's they do, I'll see you in heaven. heaven. Yeah, All right, exactly. you two. You're the best. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.